Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage and hope you're having a lovely festive weekend. Right, first off, the Christmas music. There's been a proliferation this year of what I generously call Christmas music. So, in a move away from that, any music that will be making an appearance on the programme today is either unconventional instruments for Christmas or otherwise heritage, such as the first one that I'm highlighting, the fairground organ. Over the years at the fairgrounds or amusement parks in Hong Kong, someone somewhere may have opened up the side of their carriage or their truck and there before you would have been what was invented as a French pneumatic musical organ covering the wind and percussive sections of an orchestra to accompany you on your fairground rides and merry-go-rounds. So here is an 1897 Gavioli carousel organ. Thank you. Today's programme is a look back at the year with a hodgepodge of themes that is Hong Kong. We start off with Oliver Chow, who's a Hong Kong music and culture historian who's known many of the key people in the music business in Hong Kong, including the man behind Tom Lee Music, Thomas Lee, who died at the age of 101 earlier this year, and his wife really encouraged local youth in music over the decades. Now, Betty, his wife, they, they make a trip, they, they, they go on a trip to Japan, and that, that was quite a signature moment as well, wasn't it? Yes, you're talking about 1962, when the couple went to Yamaha, and they were there for two weeks, and in fact, they filmed the entire piano manufacturing process, and then they brought that film back to Hong Kong, and then they held a large press event, by inviting the, the government education bureau and university professors, orchestra conductors, you name it. More than 100 individuals, they went to that press event and they watched that film. And that's how Yamaha landed in Hong Kong. And in the same year, 1962, they arranged a large grand piano, 9 foot 3 piano, uh, Yamaha, to be performed at the new City Hall. We are talking about 60 years of City Hall this year. That was the year they featured that grand piano at a beauty pageant held at the Hong Kong City Hall. Oliver Chow there. City Hall was opened 60 years ago on the 2nd of March, 1962. And here's some sound from Radio Hong Kong reporting live on the event. And now everyone in the audience rises and the police band begins to play the ceremonial march by Ord Hume. And the inspecting party, led by His Excellency the Governor, with Lady Black, Miss Black, Mr. Kinghorn, the Chairman of the Urban Council, and Mr. Ingalls, the Director of Public Works, lead the way from the stage and begin their tour of the building. The other members of the inspecting party are Mr. Abitas, the manager of the City Hall, Mr. Brooke Benaki, Mr. Fitch and Mr. Phillips, the architects who've had so much to do with the City Hall, Mr. Raymond Lee, Mr. Y.K. Kan, Dr. P.F. Wu, and Mr. Watts. 
And that party makes its way out of the concert hall now, and they will go first to the high block of City Hall. From 1962 to 1972, which was a busy year for Hong Kong, it saw the opening of Hong Kong's first container port and the Cross Harbour Tunnel. Tragedy struck with a series of landslides, and at the start of the year, the ocean liner, formerly known as the Queen Elizabeth, went up in flames in the harbour. It was on a bright Sunday on January the 9th, just about midday, when fire broke out on the giant passenger liner Queen Elizabeth, anchored off Chingy Island and undergoing conversion into a floating university. The liner had been bought by Hong Kong shipping magnate C.Y. Tung for nearly $20 million and had been renamed the C.Y.'s University. The smoke now has changed colour somewhat. It now has taken on a rather evil yellowish-grey look. As we first arrived, it was fairly clean white smoke, but now, obviously, some oil and another great burst, a huge explosion, just like a cannon shot, and a mushroom of smoke has just belched out from the stern, even above the sound of the helicopter, we heard that bang, and a sheet of flame, and a great smoke ring, 30, 40, 50 feet across, spiralling up into the sky here. Britain's long-serving Queen Elizabeth II would die in September at the age of 96. She first visited Hong Kong in 1975. And now the car carrying the Queen and Prince Philip draws up close to the entrance to the old railway station here at Simsatui. The Queen now only a few feet away from me. Back to the music. Veteran entertainer Rosalie Carpio was on the show to talk about her life in music in Hong Kong, where she first came in the early 1970s. Her husband, Tony Carpio, a great jazz guitarist, band leader and composer, died this year, and I'll be returning to him in the new year. When you come to Hong Kong in the 70s, are you performing in, in hotels or ballrooms? Oh, in a or? big nightclub. That was the only nightclub without pillars. That was something special those days because every club everywhere had pillars in the middle of everything. And so which nightclub was this? That was Kingsland. So we did one show in Kingsland and we crossed the harbour and did the other one in King's Garden later. So two shows a night. Where was Kingsland then? Kimberley Road, the Mirror, Miramar. Yeah, the great big nightclub there. Big one, and all the Japanese tourists used to come. And, and how come it didn't have any pillars? They're just the design of it. Yeah, that was something special for that time because everywhere else had pillars and mirrors and everything else. It was a big, really big. It was huge. And it would, you would be singing in a nightclub sort of with everybody, uh, yeah, what, with, with tables? Or... And, yeah, yeah. one time when I kicked them, my shoe went into the audience. <laughs> Those things do happen, you know. <laughs> so you'd have, what, a sort of a small or a larger dance area? or On the stage. Yeah, so that was on the stage. The King's Garden, 
was next to the Bank of East Asia in Devore Road Central. It was a smaller club, not big like the Kingsland. So, yeah, we did two shows a night. Ken Jekyll was the, the two of us sang, and the dancers, they had all kind of production numbers and Egyptian and, you know, so many, yeah, different, yeah. So you're constantly changing... Broadway numbers. Yeah, so yeah. you're constantly changing costumes, or...? Yes, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was another Carpio on the show, Teresa Carpio, just a couple of weeks ago who went to a Portuguese school in Hong Kong and surprised me by still remembering the anthem. What I find interesting with you, I mean, you'd have grown up in going to this Portuguese school, so presumably speaking English at the school? Only English. And, yeah. And, you know, I can still remember the Portuguese anthem. That you had to sing at school? Every day. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are you in a rush right now? No. Don't take this heaven from us if you with the music. Live music finally returned to Hong Kong and the entertainment institution, The Wanch, in Wan Chai, had bands back on stage. I caught up with John Primer outside The Wanch on that first night. feel really good, actually. It's Actually, not just for myself, but all the musicians, and not only musicians, but the comedians, the dance troops, everybody. I mean, the arts are finally able to come back, and you can just see the uplift in all of Hong Kong, not just us as, as performers, but even, even the general public who's coming out to support it. So, yeah, it's a really good night. So you're now 35 years old. The launch is, yeah, I wish I was 35. <laughs> Yeah, it, uh, the launch opened October 20th, 1987, 35 years ago today. This year, the Hong Kong Maritime Museum reopened after a revamp, and I joined Chief Curator Dr Libby Chan to talk about junks. This is uh, one of the interesting angles we are looking at about Chinese junk and indeed for the design of junks that has been used for not just decades but at the same time like thousands of years because uh, the traditions built in different regions such as in Cantonese type of junk they have very special uh, way to do it or Fujian, uh, Fujian, Fujianese uh, type of junk but in Hong Kong mainly is Cantonese type of junk and we also experience a period of uh, motorization and all the junks indeed in the 70s they converted to be run by diesel so a uh, lot of converted work they've been applied on the junks the Jumbo Floating Restaurant was towed away from Hong Kong on June the 14th and it promptly sank six days later off the Paracel Islands. 
Jumbo and other floating restaurants that preceded it have appeared on a number of movies and television series. Hong Kong movie buff Phil Kenny talks here about how Jumbo features on Spider-Man, the 1970s TV series. There's been a, a ton of films that have captured it in the background. I think the first one was 1978, Oliver's Story. Actually, they did film on the Jumbo. It was Ryan O'Neill and Candice Bergen. Um, the story is they come over because Candice owns uh, some factories for her fashion company or something like that, and they, they come over to have a look, and they're having a like a heart-to-heart on the Jumbo. And you can actually, in the background, you can see the Thai pack and the Sea Palace. <laughs> so the, the, they must have been on the Jumbo because that was the only one, the only one that was there. Um, that was in 1978. I think the main production that utilised the Jumbo the most wasn't actually a film, or it wasn't originally a film. Mm. Uh, but I don't know if you remember the, the late 1970s, The Amazing Spider-Man series with Nicholas Hammond. In the late 70s, he became Spider-Man. He was you know, oh, the right. Spider-Man that I grew up with and the Spider-Man that, that I loved, even though... Did, I, you, did you try and stick your way up walls I, I used to jump off walls and, and, <laughs> I, and I had a little Spider-Man like movable doll and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and that was because of that show. What they did, they, they made an extended episode of the show called, I think it was called The Chinese Web, and basically they filmed it all in Hong Kong. I think it was originally a, like a two-part show or something like that, you know, each one like a feature length. But what they did, because of the success or because they wanted to recoup their money in, in some other way, they edited the two episodes into one feature-length film and they actually gave it a theatrical release. And it was called uh, Spider-Man, I think it was The Dragon's Challenge. I don't think it's had a DVD release, but it's, it's definitely on YouTube. You can watch oh, okay. it there. And they filmed extensively on the Jumbo when it was actually parked right up on the on the waterfront. You know, it wasn't in the middle of the harbour. For some reason, it was parked on the waterfront. And and it was basically the venue where the, you know, the bad guys kind of get together and do all their business. <laughs> and, and there's a scene where Spider-Man sort of infiltrates and he's climbing all over the Jumbo. And then he's shot with a tranquilizer dart. And he falls from the very top of the Jumbo into the harbour. And, uh, you know, this is in the 1970s when the floating city was still there, you know, before they'd moved them into the government housing surrounding. And um, the stuntman who, who did all of Nicholas Hammond's stunts, you know, dressed up in the Spider-Man suit, he, he climbed up the side of Jardine House, Connaught Centre at the time, and all this kind of stuff. There's a scene with him <laughs> climbing up the side. It's very impressive. Well, the stuntman was a chap called Fred War, and uh, he took one look at the, the water in the Aberdeen Harbour, and he says... There's no way I'm falling into that. So they, apparently they had to get a local Chinese uh, stuntman to, to do that particular stunt because none of the American stuntmen would do it. Here's a bit more Christmas music on a gazoo.
the Fleet Arcade at Fenwick Pier in Wan Chai, an institution in Hong Kong for decades, finally shut its doors. The pier, with its shops and services for Navy personnel from 14 different countries, was run by the Servicemen's Guides Association, or SGA, which Molly Lee worked for for 42 years. Some of the young American sailors stayed in touch with Molly and then their sons would come by too a generation later. I caught up with Molly Lee on those final few days. My name is Molly Lee. I've been working here for 42 years, since uh, 1979. So I've seen a lot of uh, ships, sailors, and uh, young and old sailors. <laughs> so. It's, it's fun to have a job like this because I like to meet people and talk to people. <laughs> so what's your job been? Uh, it's considered as receptionist. But then uh, eventually I became a sales marketing <laughs> for selling ads in the guidebook and also uh, doing some administrative work, uh, preparing meetings for bosses, prepare food and all that. Yes. So anything that comes up uh, that evolves, if I can do it, I'll do it. So Molly Lee, you've been working for the SGA for 42 years. <laughs> yes, That's incredible yes. legacy. Yes. So um, you said, you know, you would meet these sailors coming through. Yes. And, and so you'd be at the reception of Fenwick Pier or yes. at, at Fleet Arcade. Yes. And uh, besides that, I have the uh, American Women's Association that uh, uh, we coordinate during the ships that are in. It all depends on the size of the ships. If it's uh, like a carrier, then usually we get like three people per shift for like two or three hours. So then uh, if it's a small ship, then we need like one or two. So the American Women's Association would provide support? Yes, support to answer questions. And if they are brand new ladies, <laughs> then we'll give them some uh, lessons and then uh, eventually they will uh, get used to the questions they ask because normally they ask the same thing. <laughs> what would be the questions? So these are uh, U.S. Navy personnel coming in. Yes, usually it's uh, where can I change my money? Uh, how to get to Stanley Market? Uh, where is the toilet? You know, these are the f more frequent questions that they usually ask because the first thing when they get on import, they usually. Uh, really think of changing the money first. How do you feel about leaving Fenwick Pier? A little bit, you know, it's sad to leave this place because I spend more of my time and half of my life here. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to a very special edition of The Essential Mix with me, Pete Tong. Last weekend, we were lucky enough to be invited to the biggest ever dance party held in Hong Kong to commemorate the historic handover of the last great British colony. 10,000 people attended the Unity Party held in Kowloon, the mainland peninsula opposite Hong Kong Island, to dance the night away at one of the most amazing events that I've ever played at. The bill for the evening included live performances from the legendary Grace Jones and Adrian Sherwood's On You Sound, together with Gene headlining the alternative room. During the next two hours, you'll hear highlights of the sets played in the main room by Paul Oakenfold, Boy George and myself. I hope you'll enjoy it. I think we've managed to capture some of the atmosphere of this once-in-a-lifetime event. If you watched the television pictures last weekend, you'll have some idea of what June the 30th meant to the local community. 
community. That was the official ceremony. Here's what happened on the underground. Let me tell you, Hong Kong rocks. Now put your hands together for Billy George! Two days before the handover ceremony, there was a huge party in Kowloon called Unity. It was the brainchild of impresario Andrew Bull. Here, he and legendary DJ and record producer Paul Oakenfold share their memories of that event. The 28th was a Saturday night, and it was obviously you didn't want to clash with the actual, you know, you'd be a fool to go up against Prince Charles and uh, Chris Patton and Jiang Zemin on the same stage. I was actually in Beijing doing a show, and I stumbled out of the sound check, and there was like a sort of Temple Street market at the back door of the nightclub where I was, and uh, I found this bloke selling some really cheesy plastic posters uh, with uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, welcoming uh, the the new Hong Kong uh, reunion. It was a fantastic image, so I thought I could build an event around that image. Yeah, when you start to, to do something like that, it, it all happens in rather a world because it it all came together within like eight weeks or something like that. Because the impetus to do something was the fact that nobody was doing anything, so I just went mad for a month and a half and did it. And where did you hold it? Uh, well, it used to be called High Tech. It's now called Kai Tech. It's down in Kowloon Bay. There. So tell me about the night. Well, it was a phenomenal evening. The venue didn't believe that it was going to be that busy because we told them we'd sold 10,000 tickets. But by midnight, there was nobody there because it was going to be a late one. There were, all these people were ravers. So uh, they let most of the cashiers go home. And then the punters arrived at one o'clock and uh, all the managers had to roll their sleeves up to, to, to take the money. But they were totally unprepared. I mean, because they, they were in charge of the bar. We just sold the tickets. They got to keep most of the bar revenue. That was their thing. So they sold a million and a half dollars worth of drinks and then ran out of everything. But everybody had a good time. So I believe it was a miraculous night. I mean, there was a, there was some highs and lows. There was the famous Punch and Judy event when uh, Boy George and Grace Jones had a bit of a punch-up in the DJ booth. I think that's great. Oh, yeah, I just seen it. Yeah, well, I've seen an I've seen an image of it, and uh, there's Grace Jones. I mean, she's always fantastically dressed, but there she is in a gold gilt yeah. kind of, you know, top, and and um, she's really facing off with Boy George. Well, no, because that was for her third encore. He didn't realise that she had three encores. He thought she was done after the second one. But that outfit you saw her wearing in the photo was like part of her massive third encore, the great Grace Jones coming on stage. But he started DJing thinking she was finished, understandably. I mean, who has three encores? Let's face it. But anyway, a boy George didn't know she had three. So after she did two... He started DJing and he had the crowd going. So she had a panic attack. She was getting ready for her third encore and sent her husband, a, a very nice chap from Turkey called Attila, to argue with Boy George, but he wasn't having any of it. So she actually came up to the booth herself and they ended up having a bit of a scuffle, but he never ended up acquiescing. I remember the show, especially the moment that Grace finished the set and then came back out but no one knew she was coming back out so george put a record on and that was a bit of a palaver it was miraculously photographed so there's that one picture which floats around the internet of them arguing well it was first of all fantastic lineup at that time to put together a collection of artists 
like that to come to Hong Kong and be part of a, a monumental, wonderful evening, I thought was, was amazing. I remember a few things. I remember having a lovely dinner before with all the artists and getting to know Grace. I knew George for many years. Then myself went on and I was playing at the time these records that turned into big classics now, actually. So uh, it was a great occasion. When you think back to that party, so when during the night, when was your set? Well, I closed out the show. So it was Grace Jones, Boy George, then myself. What was a big deal was the night, was how wonderful it was and the occasion for everyone to come together. And it was a celebration of, of, of change, I suppose. Not everyone likes change. I mean, it, it puts you out of your comfort zone, and I sense that. I think that was the biggest moment for me, but it was there, it was it was part of it, and we left that night, with a, I, I'm sure with the 10,000 people that were in that room having a great, wonderful time. Legendary DJ Paul Oakenfield there with Andrew Bull on their party at the handover 25 years ago. That was a look back at a few items from this year's Hong Kong Heritage. And now, just to finish off, a little bit of my childhood Christmas. My mother comes from Germany, so for me, Christmas really is about Christmas Eve. We would have a natural Christmas tree that would be brought in and put on a stand in the living room to be decorated on Christmas Eve afternoon. There would be baubles, both red and white, that are decades old, and traditional decorations, some made by a late aunt out of a form of pottery and baked in the oven, then hung on a string. We also had natural candles, so you sprayed the tree a little with water beforehand. Then the electric lights would be switched off and we would just see the glow of the candles. And we would either sing or sing along with my mother to Christmas carols in German or she would put on a record of carols on the radiogram. My grandmother and great-aunt would send us a box of gifts, so from southern Germany to southern England. And this was always very exciting. And in the box would be walnuts presents, the traditional cake, Stollen, and one that has nutmeg and hazelnut, Liebkuchen, often in the shape of moons and stars. So here's a bit of my heritage. O Tannenbaum, or O Christmas Tree. Thanks for all of your support this year, to everyone who's come on the programme and kindly given their time, recollections and knowledge, and to you, the listeners. Next week on Hong Kong Heritage. My uncle was a famous motor racing journalist, but he was also 
he was the navigator with Sterling Moss when they won the Millimilia in 1955. He'd been a motorcycle racer. Twice he was world champion on a motorcycle sidecar. And he was the movable ballast in the sidecar. You know, and because he always had a beard, he could hang out the side of the sidecar and just feel his beard touching the ground so he knew that he couldn't lean out any further. Renowned transport designer Peter Stevens was in Hong Kong from the UK earlier this month. He was involved in the design of the revamped Peak Tram, so we'll be talking about that. And how his uncle, a famous British motorsports journalist, Dennis Jenkinson, the navigator with Sterling Moss, was a key influence on his future career in vehicle design. Here's wishing you a lovely festive holiday and a great start to the new year. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.